physics world. Antimatter, the stuff of science fact and indeed science fiction, enthralls researchers and the public alike. The word itself brings to mind thoughts of advanced science and spaceships, catastrophe and destruction, and indeed, angels and demons. But what exactly is antimatter? Why are physicists so keen to study this near-mythical stuff? And most puzzlingly of all, where, in a universe seemingly full to the brim of matter, has all the antimatter gone? I'm Tushna Commissariat, reporter for Physics World, and recently I went to visit one of the few places in the universe where antimatter is actively produced, the Alpha Experiment at the CERN Particle Physics Lab in Geneva, and caught up with their spokesperson, Jeffrey Hangst. Over a cup of coffee at the CERN canteen on a sunny morning, Hangst and I talked about the latest updates in the field of antimatter research, including how to make and trap it, what a day in the life of an antimatter experimentalist entails, and of course, what it's like being involved in a scientific field that gets cited on Star Trek as often as it is in academia. I think the first question is just, could you give us a short and simple little explainer on, on antimatter, you know, where it came from, where it disappeared away to, what we think happened with antimatter in the first place? Okay, so you just asked me to win the Nobel Prize while we're sitting here, right? Uh, what, where's, what's antimatter and where did it go is the question. Well, first, what it is, right? So we know the observable universe is made up of what we call normal matter and particles that make up the atoms and molecules that everything is made of. So we have protons, neutrons, electrons in normal matter. We now know that each of these fundamental particles has a corresponding antiparticle, which is identical except for the opposite charge. And the interesting thing about this stuff is that it can't be in the same space with normal matter. So for every proton, you could have an antiproton, which is the opposite charge. And we think that you could actually build an anti-universe, right? That the physics, the laws of physics are the same for these things. The only catch being that they can't coexist. So the current theory says that when the universe was created, there must have been the same amount of matter and antimatter. And why do we think that? We think that because when we make an experiment, try to produce matter using E equals MC squared, right? That's what we do here. We make equal amounts of matter and antimatter. When we create these fundamental particles, they're always in equal quantities. So the idea was that the Big Bang was this massive release of energy that some of it turned into matter, and there should have been created equal amounts of matter and antimatter. You couldn't have a universe like that because that would just re-annihilate and you'd have nothing but photons, light. So we were looking for some explanation of what happened to the antimatter. Or what's, why did nature prefer matter over antimatter? And I'm, I'm serious about the Nobel Prize. If you could explain that, I mean, that's, a, that's a sure ticket to, to, to Stockholm. The actual term antimatter was coined by physicist Arthur Schuster in a letter to the journal Nature in 1898, wherein he conjured up entire solar systems made up of antiatoms. The modern theory for antimatter, as we now know it, was first postulated by renowned physicist Paul Dirac in 1928. Four years later, experimental physicist Carl Anderson discovered the anti-electron, or the positron as it came to be known, while studying showers of cosmic rays in a cloud chamber. We now know that every particle has a partnering antiparticle of the same mass but with an opposite charge. 
Even neutral particles have their own antiparticles, as the quarks or leptons that make them up do have charge. Flip those around and again you have an antiparticle. You could imagine a, a whole periodic system uh, of anti-atoms, right? There's nothing so far that precludes that from happening. Um, so far we can only make anti-hydrogen. Um, people have observed anti-helium nuclei in collisions, but that's as far as it's gone. Uh, the, the, the general assumption is that matter and antimatter are equivalent and that you could just build an anti-universe if you, if you had space. <laughs> the first antimatter atoms were created at CERN in 1995. During the groundbreaking work, a mere nine atoms of antihydrogen were produced over a three-week period. But antimatter production has come a long way since then. So at CERN you use an accelerator to accelerate protons, run them into a target, create antiprotons which you collect and then use for experiments. I mean of course one of the, one of the most important things that you guys sort of um, finally managed to do in uh, 2010 or 2011 was to sort of hold this antimatter yes. because of course you know the minute it comes into contact with matter, yes. poof, it's gone. That's right. So you, you know you managed to do that. So how exactly does Alpha hold its antimatter? Okay, the, the trick is that we're holding on to neutral antimatter now, okay? Holding on to charged antimatter, antiprotons or positrons, that's very easy, right? You use their electric charge to hold on to them. And we must first produce the antihydrogen by manipulating the charged antiprotons, the charged positrons to make the atom. That part, okay, now it seems straightforward. It wasn't straightforward in 2002 when we first learned how to do that. The trick with alpha is that now you have something that's neutral. It has no net charge. So to hold on to that is, is quite difficult. The way that you do this is you use the fact that even though it's neutral, it's slightly magnetic. Okay, so a, a, an antihydrogen atom has a little bit of a magnet within it. You can think of it as sort of a microscopic compass needle. Okay, so it responds to external magnetic fields. The difficulty with this is the interaction is very weak compared to dealing with the charged particle where you can grab it with an electric field. When you get to the magnetic interaction, it's just much, many orders of magnitude weaker. So what's hard about this is that in order to hold antihydrogen with a magnetic field, it needs to be very cold. In other words, it needs to be moving very slowly. In order to hold an antihydrogen atom, it has to be less than 0.5 degrees above absolute zero. And that means you have to create it with that temperature. You have to create it very cold. Otherwise, it runs out of the thing you're trying to hold it in. Okay? So there's a good analogy for this. You, you have a bowl, and you put a marble that rolls in the bowl. If the marble rolls too fast, it, it goes out the edge and escapes. We create our antihydrogen in a magnetic bowl at the bottom of it. If it's moving too fast, it just rolls over the lip. If it's cold enough, it just stays there and, and rolls back and forth. So that, that's the analogy, but the bowl is very shallow, is the problem. Even with the best technology you can buy, you get 0.5 degrees above absolute zero. And that's just very, very difficult to do. In 2010, Alpha, short for Antihydrogen Laser Physics Apparatus, became the first experiment to trap 38 antihydrogen atoms 
and hold them for about one-fifth of a second using the original Alpha device. This was swiftly up by the team in early 2011 as they trapped an impressive 309 anti-hydrogen atoms for 1,000 seconds. That's nearly 16 minutes. Okay, so the first thing that we did was just demonstrate that you could hold it at all, right? And the way that you do this is you, you hold it and then you intentionally release it and so that it hits some matter and annihilates and then you detect the annihilation, okay? So that's, that's how you do this. And of course for the first experiment you just want to hold it and then throw it away quickly to see that it was there, right? So the first experiment was just that, just to prove that you could do that and that was 2010. The next step was then how long can we hold it so that we can do an experiment? And the, the strategy is the same, you, you capture it, you hold on to it for some time, and then you release it. It's a very boring experiment, right, because you, you, you do all these manipulations to make and hold the antimatter, and then you just wait. You're not really learning anything but this, right, you, this precious antimatter, you know, that only exists in our little corner of the universe, and just waiting it for it while you go have a coffee. Right? But what we found then, which was the limit of our patience and not the limit of the experiment was that we could hold it for a thousand seconds. Right? We've also measured some signal out at 2,000 seconds, but again, it's not interesting to, to do this. A thousand seconds is enough. So we firmly established we could hold it for that long and then we stopped looking. Right? That's a long time to do an atomic physics experiment, which is what our ultimate goal is. Right? We want to measure what happens to antihydrogen. So what's, um, what's changed with Alpha 2? How have you upgraded your entire apparatus? Okay, our, our strategy with Alpha 1 was just to demonstrate that you could trap antihydrogen. We didn't build any experiments into that. We thought it was so hard to do that we didn't want to compromise the design very much. Right? So we knew that Alpha 1 was, you know, had a limited uh, utility. We did manage to squeeze some results out of it, the first interaction with a, an antihydrogen atom. We did this uh, measurement of uh, a demonstration of how you would measure gravity with antihydrogen. So it, it really exceeded its, its expectations by a lot. But what we really want to do is we want to interact with antihydrogen with radiation, with laser light, for example, and study its internal structure. So Alpha 2 was designed to do that. It has everything that Alpha-1 could do, which is to make and trap antihydrogen. And in addition, it has the ability to introduce electromagnetic radiation, lasers, microwaves, to study the internal structure of antihydrogen. That's what we're about in the end, right? We want to compare antihydrogen to hydrogen. And we want to compare them very, very accurately. I was lucky enough to visit the Alpha site and even got a sneak peek of the Alpha 2 setup, which is the size of a small room and covered in a lot of tinfoil. Alpha 2's new superconducting solenoid magnet, the bit where the antihydrogen is actually trapped, has windows through which the laser light will be shone. I was quite amused to notice that the device was kitted out with a big sticker of the Danish beer company Carlsberg. Hanks gamely explained that the solenoid was in fact financed via a grant from the Carlsberg Foundation and then built in the UK. While the team haven't had the chance yet to put the new Alpha 2 device through its paces, they did have a quick trial run late last year. Yeah, we only had sort of six or seven weeks of running 
and I can tell you right now, Alpha 2 rocks. It, in that short time, we managed to trap antihydrogen. We've sort of doubled the trapping rates compared to Alpha 1. And we even got to the point where we could do a proof of principle of trapping antihydrogen and overlapping it with laser light. Right? Um, it, we really just had a really successful run, sort of an engineering run, if you will, because we didn't get time to do any systematic physics. But it, it really it, it blew us away how, how well it worked. All right, so I think we must have learned something <laughs> in Alpha 1 because this is a, a really good machine and uh, we're really optimistic about it. One of the big unanswered questions that scientists are hoping to answer in this field of research is how gravity affects antimatter. Okay, is there antigravity? That's a, a really fascinating question. Does antimatter fall up or down? The short answer is we don't know yet. Uh, that's an experimental question that needs to be decided. What we managed to do in Alpha was to show how you might measure this using trapped antihydrogen. We didn't have enough resolution to answer that question yet, but we, we, we proved that you could do this by trapping and releasing antihydrogen. There are two other experiments at CERN that are, are dedicated to, to doing exactly that, measuring the the gravitational behavior of antimatter, but they're still in the startup. One of them isn't even built yet, the other one is still uh, being commissioned. Interesting times that, uh, that we have this stuff available to do that after so many years of, of just learning how to do this. So that question will be answered in, in sort of five to ten years, definitively and experimentally. So to be able to say that is, is pretty amazing. <laughs> So it would be fair to say that sort of the field of antimatter experimental research is coming into its own now because it's sort of really, like you said, in the next decade or so we should have some quite concrete answers. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's a fair statement that, that antimatter research is, is coming into its own now. We've gone past the stage of just demonstrating the possibility of this into the, to the phase of actually designing experiments and, and undertaking experiments. And that's very gratifying for those of us who have been in this from the beginning, essentially, at, 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 the, at the AD, to not just talk about what we might do, but to, to go and, and do it. And, and, and CERN is kind of rewarding us for this. They're investing in our program. They're building a new machine called ELENA, which comes after the antiproton decelerator to go to even lower energy to allow us to better utilize uh, the beam. So they made a big investment now. Uh, after the 2010 results, they've committed to this uh, this program. So yeah, this is a, I, I hope the the golden age <laughs> for for a low energy antimatter research. Apart from Alpha, there are four other antimatter experiments that run along the antiproton decelerator ring, including ACE, Aegis, ATRAP, and Asakusa. All of these experiments look for the smallest of differences between hydrogen and antihydrogen at low energies and with extreme precision. On the other hand, CERN's LHCb experiment studies antimatter at extremely high energies that mimic conditions that occurred soon after the Big Bang. Hangst believes that all of these programs are complementary. One never knows where the new stuff might show up, right? so it's, it's really good to, to have the opportunity to do both. So it's really exciting. Plus there's on the ISS, there's the, the alpha mass spectrometer, right, looking for antimatter from space. So there's all sorts of really cool stuff going on now. This is a, a fun time for this. 
Sci-fi and pop culture seems to be littered with references to antimatter, especially thanks to the now famous book and film Angels and Demons, where some antimatter is supposedly stolen from CERN and used to build a bomb. In reality, all the antimatter produced at CERN in a year would just about power a light bulb for a few seconds. Hang seems like a laid-back sort of guy, so I wanted to know how he and others in the field deal with this kind of interest. How do we look at it? Um, the publicity is always fun, right? The, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So if someone makes a movie about our work or writes a book about our work, that's, that's okay. We, we laugh about it, obviously, because uh, we're dealing with one or two atoms at a time, right? We're not going to make a gram of, of anti-hydrogen to threaten somebody. But uh, I, I think one thing about antimatter, it's kind of easy to understand, right? It, it, and what's really gratifying is when the, like, the students come here and, and have a tour. They may have heard about Star Trek or, or Angels and Demons, but you can kind of see the light go on when they understand that, okay, this is real, and it's interesting of its own right, right? Whether or not you ever have enough antimatter to, to use for something, the, the whole idea of the missing antimatter, they get that, right? And they realize that, hey, this is really cool, independently of the, of the science fiction, the science fact is, is just as fascinating. So that's, that's, that's good. And, and I'm, there's still a little bit of a boy in me. I, I think it's amazing that I'm able to work on this, right, after you know, hearing about it my whole life. To, to actually be the guy who does this is pretty awesome. <laughs> Do you ever have people sort of phoning in and saying, you know, are you going to destroy the university? Are you sure all the antimatter is locked away safely for the night? Have you had any incidents <laughs> like that? <laughs> Tushin, I have, a, I have a, a mailbox, which I call Wacko. Every time I get one of these emails from these guys uh, who are worried about I might destroy the universe or, or have some ideas to help me do that, right, then I put it in this box and I get at least one of these every week. Some of them are quite serious and the truly frightening thing is that sometimes you get some new theory written by a guy and then he refers to his colleague in, in whatever their shadow network is of... of antimatter boffins out there and he said I know my colleague so-and-so has contacted you about this and so there's a network of these guys it's a, it's a little bit a little bit frightening for all these people who are really interested you know the, the genuine interest in antimatter how would you describe um, a day in the life of an antimatter researcher believe me it's nothing like the movies to actually work on antimatter in in real life we do a lot of uh, plumbing and uh, electrical wiring. And I mean, it's just, it's not glamorous at all. It's just a, a lot of hard work. It's really exciting when you actually are working with the beam and, and you know, getting to the point of, of achieving something and improving something. But there's a whole lot of just really hard drudgery, you know, to, to build an experiment from scratch, to get it to work to run the night shifts that you need to run, right? The, we run 24 hours a day. You'll see the AD in a little bit. It, it, it's not a very nice environment. Uh, it's, uh, it's more like a factory uh, than an Angels and Demons set. But I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, right? The, this, I have the best job in the world. There's no question about that. Hans tells me that his personal goal, ever since he got into the antimatter business, as it were, has been to do the first laser interactions with antihydrogen, I asked him what his main ambitions are for the upcoming Alpha 2 run, which will begin this summer. 
what I'm really looking forward to is to say, okay, yeah, we've, we've talked to antihydrogen with a laser, right? We, we've interrogated its internal structure. And it won't be very accurate in the beginning, but it'll still be huge for us right, to, to be able to do that. I can clearly remember when people said, you will never make antihydrogen, right? And even after we did that, they said, you will never trap antihydrogen. And so now to be in this state where we've got it trapped and we can shine light on it, that's, that's completely amazing. So that's, that's still my goal, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's over, just over the horizon right now. I think we're, we're almost there. To keep up to date with Alpha 2 and other cutting-edge breakthroughs in antimatter research, stay tuned to physicsworld.com. I'm Tushna Commissariat, and thanks for listening to this Physics World podcast. Physics World.